This is number 4373. Derek Prince speaks on the subject, Seven Steps to Revival. This message is entitled, Self-Humbling. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Now, you will get more out of this message if you will repeat those words after me as a personal prayer, not as, a, as an attempt at recitation but say them sincerely as a prayer we'll say them phrase by phrase don't try to say them with us say them afterwards mm -hmm. who, who can, can understand, understand his errors cleanse me from secret faults keep back your servant also from presumptuous words Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Now the theme that we have felt God gave us for these meetings, Don and his team and Ruth and myself and others, is somehow to open the way for revival to break through in Britain. And I've preached two messages which were directed toward that, establishing the priorities of the Christian life. The first one, what is the first priority? Love. I didn't hear you. Thank you. The Bible says make love your aim, then seek spiritual gifts and other things. And the Bible also says the goal of our instruction is love. And if we diverge from that, it's aimless talk and fruitless discussion. And then last night I sought to describe to you briefly the kind of love that God talks about. The kind of love that Jesus demands. And there was a marvelous response last night. I believe God communicated to, to many people something of what it really means to love Jesus. Tonight, tomorrow night and the following night, God helping me, I'm going to deal with what I consider to be the three main hindrances to revival. And the first one I'm going to deal with tonight can be summed up in one very short, unpopular word. It is pride. I believe without a question 
pride is the root problem of the church in Britain today and not only in Britain but let's talk about Britain because that's where we are and let me tell you in case you don't know it no one here is more British than I am in every way and I'm speaking as to my own people and I'm speaking as for my country which I love I want to turn first of all to Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14 these are familiar words it's a promise of God and I believe it's a promise of revival and I have preached on these words for at least 30 years but very recently God showed me something about them that I had never seen before let me read the words God is speaking he says if my people who are called by my name now if you are a Christian you're called by the name of Christ it's called upon you therefore those words apply to you and to me if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land now I've pointed out many times there are seven sections four conditions that we have to fulfill and three promises that God makes if we fulfill those conditions the four conditions we have to fulfill are if my people will humble themselves pray seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then God says I will hear from heaven will forgive their sin and will heal their land now as I say I have preached on that text in many different countries I've actually written a book which is based on the text called Shaping History Through Prayer and Fasting but only recently after all those years God showed me something that shocked me and startled me and he said as I understood it in this generation my people who are called by my name have never fulfilled the first condition and without the first condition all the other promises are empty the first condition is if my people will humble themselves so tonight I'm going to speak about that first condition humbling yourself humbling myself and I want to point out to you that the first sin in the universe did not take place on earth it did not it was not committed by a human being it took place in heaven and it was committed by an archangel and his name was Lucifer after his rebellion and his fall his name was changed to Satan now one of the functions of prophecy is not merely to tell us what is going to happen but it's also to tell us what has happened that we couldn't otherwise know for instance Moses was a prophet and he's given us the revelation of how creation took place otherwise we could never know yeah. now there's another prophet Ezekiel who describes very vividly the fall of Lucifer you'll find the words in Ezekiel 28 verses 
11 and following. Ezekiel 28. Now this is a vivid, poetic picture. And I could speak on this at length, but I only want to just touch on the main outline. Son of man, verse 12, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. Now in this chapter there are two persons. The first person is the prince of Tyre. The second is the king of Tyre. And it's very clear that the prince of Tyre is a human being. It's equally clear that the king of Tyre was not a human being. And this brings out a fact which is very important, especially understanding spiritual warfare, that human earthly kings are ruled by satanic spiritual kingdoms in the heavenly. And if you really want to deal with the problems, it's not sufficient to deal with the problem on the earthly level. You have to deal with the problem on the heavenly level. And there is only one company of people that is equipped and armed to do that. It's not the politicians, it's not the generals, it's not the scientists, it's the church of Jesus Christ. We alone have the knowledge and the weapons at our disposal to deal with those satanic principalities and powers in the heavenlies which actually dominate the course of human history. And so now in this second part of chapter 28 Ezekiel turns his attention away from the prince of Tyre to the king of Tyre. And as I read these words you'll see very clearly it could not be a human being that is being described. In verse 12 Thus says the Lord God you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Notice. He's an angelic being, but he's a created being. There's only one person who is uncreated. That's God. All the rest of us are created. There's a teaching today that's even infiltrated the church that somehow we can become gods. But dear brothers and sisters, that's ridiculous. The created can never become the uncreated. Then it goes on, you were the anointed cherub who covers, who covers the throne of God. I established you, God speaks. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Obviously this is not any human being that's being addressed. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity or rebellion was found in you. And then we just take one further verse, verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground, I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. What was the reason for Lucifer's fall? What was his sin? Pride. That's right. And pride, brothers and sisters, is the original sin. 
We use the word original sin theologically speaking about the sin that's been inherited from Adam. But really that's not a correct use. The original sin is pride. And in my opinion, pride is the root of every other sin. And Satan's main tactic against us is to induce in us a condition of pride. And I heard a fellow preacher once say, an Indian brother, and he said, pride is the only sin about which Satan never makes you feel guilty. So tonight we're going to deal with pride. How can we handle the problem of pride? The answer is found in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 beginning in the middle of verse 5 which is a quotation from the Old Testament. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you see how futile it is to pray to God out of pride? Because God is resisting you. He's standing against you. You may use the finest words and the most elegant scriptures. But if you're praying out of pride, God is resisting you. Your Your prayers will not accomplish what you hope. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now we come to the next verse and it begins with a therefore and many of you probably heard me say when you find the therefore you want to find out what it's there for and this therefore is because of the previous verse therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time the only remedy for pride is to humble ourselves And I would suggest to you that there is not a single person here tonight who does not need to deal with pride in your life. Not one person. And the only remedy is humble yourself. And let me point out to you from the scripture, you cannot ask God to make you humble. Because God always says, humble yourself. God can humiliate you and he may have to do it. But only you can make yourself humble. And you can only do it when the Holy Spirit moves you. You cannot do it out of your own will. But when the Holy Spirit touches you, touches your heart, as I believe he touched our heart through the singing of that first song by Brother Spencer. It touched my heart to think of that unclean, sinful woman who ended up at the feet of Jesus. She was the only one that walked out of that banquet, a free woman. Why? What did she do? She humbled herself. She couldn't have done more than she did. She washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. There is no other remedy for pride. And you know, People say pride goes before a fall. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If you tolerate pride in your life and do not deal with it the scriptural way, ultimately it will destroy you. And it may well destroy your family 
too. So let me say this, God will not do it for us. He will give us the grace. He will send the Holy Spirit to us. The Holy Spirit will plead with us. But we have to make the response. And pride, is a hum humility, is not an emotion. Don't try to feel humble. It's ridiculous. Humility is a decision of the will that's expressed in action. As a matter of fact, the very passage that was the theme of the song, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus gave some examples of true humility. Luke 14, beginning at verse 7. He was at a banquet given by a Pharisee and a religious ruler. And it says, He told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places. Everybody went for the top seat. Suppose there was a banquet such as the full gospel businessmen and other people hold from time to time and there's a head table and the speakers and the big people sit there. And it's like in this scene, everybody comes in and heads straight for the head table. That's, that's where they want to sit. And so Jesus said, don't do that. Do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. So Jesus is so practical. He said, start by taking the lowest place. Because then you can't go any lower. I don't know whether you know the little poem by John Bunyan that appeals to me so much. He that is down need fear no fall. He that is low no pride. He that is humble ever shall have gone to be his guide. You know there's one safe place to be? It's on your face before God and before Ruth and I came to this meeting here tonight that's where we were on our faces before God because I know how dangerous it is to preach on this subject unless you've met the conditions generally speaking and this is not always true and it is not a pattern that everybody has to follow but when Ruth and I are invited to any preaching assignment sometime before the assignment we will be on our faces on the floor before God, reminding ourselves and telling him that we have nothing to give except what he gives us. And I told God that here tonight, even in the meeting. I said, Lord, I have nothing to give to these people except what comes from your heart, through my heart, to them. So Jesus goes on in verse 10, but when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table. So see how simple and practical Jesus is. He said, humility is not an emotion. It's not a spiritual feeling. It's a decision. And it's expressed by the way you act. Do you go for the top place? Or do you take the lowest place? You may talk about being humble, 
But if you always aim for the highest place, all it is, is talk. And then he gives a universal law. And when I say a universal law, I mean a law that governs the universe. Not just human life or life on this earth, but all life. It's in verse 11. For whoever exalts himself will be abased. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's totally universal. There are no exceptions to it. And it has an application in the life of every one of us. Do you want to be exalted? Then abase yourself. But if you exalt yourself, you will be abased. In other words, as I see it, you determine how high you'll end up by how low you start. We often are confronted by situations that are embarrassing. People may humiliate us. They may insult us. They may just treat us with contempt or reject us. Brothers and sisters, whenever that happens, rejoice. Because you've been given a wonderful opportunity to abase yourself. And remember, the lower down you go, the higher up you'll end. This is not an accident. It's not an experiment. It's a law that governs the entire universe. It's most wonderfully illustrated in the life of Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, we have this amazing contrast between Lucifer and Jesus. Lucifer was right on the level of the throne of God, but he sought the highest place and he fell. Jesus, by his divine nature, had equality with God but he humbled himself to the lowest place and therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and I want you to notice the therefore let me read that it's a, it's a remarkable fact that this epistle was written by Paul in prison who knows what writing materials he had he probably didn't have a desk but the, per the construction of it is, is absolutely perfect. The more you analyze it, the more perfect it is. And describing now the humility of Jesus and then his exaltation, Paul describes seven steps that he took downwards and seven steps that God raised him up. That's, if you have the scripture before you follow it with your eyes. Beginning at... Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, learn to think about things the way Jesus thought. Going on, it says, Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Another version says, did not consider equality with God something he had to snatch because he had it by divine right. He didn't have to grab for it. It was his. You see the difference? Yeah. Lucifer reached up, grabbed, and fell. Jesus went down, and God raised him up. Now let's look at the seven steps down. 
Verse 7 says in this version, he made himself of no reputation. The Greek says, he emptied himself. And Charles Wesley says in one of his hymns, he emptied himself of all but love. So that's step number one, he emptied himself. Step number two, he took the form of a servant. But he could have been a servant and been an angel. Step number three, he came in the likeness of men. He came down to the level of humanity. But he didn't come down to the level of Adamic perfection. He came down to the level of the men and the women of his age. And so it says, step number four, he was found in appearance as a man. When the people of his day looked at him, there was nothing in his outward appearance that indicated his divine nature. Step number five, he humbled himself. He was a humble man. He was not a prince. He was not a priest. He was a carpenter. There's no reproach in being a carpenter, but it's not the highest level of society. Step number six, he became obedient to the point of death. He not merely lived as a man, he died as a man. And step number seven, the ultimate step down, the death of the cross, the death of the criminal, the utmost extreme of shame and agony. That's our pattern. Paul says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Learn to think the way that Jesus thought. Don't reach up. Don't grand. Stoop down. See how you can come lower. Now let's look at the seven steps of exaltation that followed. And notice in verse 9, the first word is therefore. And I want to point out to you that Jesus was not exalted because he was a favorite son. He was exalted because he met the conditions to be exalted. He is a pattern. Therefore God also highly exalted him. Step number one. Step number two, gave him the name which is above every name. Step number three, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Step number four, those in heaven. Step number five, those on earth. Step number six, those under the earth. And step number seven, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you see? I was a logician. I was a, an analyst of words before I became a preacher. And one of the things that delights me is the perfect structure of Scripture. Seven steps down and seven steps up joined with the word therefore. And that therefore, dear brothers and sisters, applies in the life of every one of us. The measure to which we go down will determine the measure to which God raises us up. I wrote a, a series of messages once which never were very popular but they were entitled the way up is down. That's how it is. I don't think people have ever really felt attracted to that series of messages. But it's true. The way up is down. And if we want God 
to hear our prayers for revival in Britain, we cannot bypass the first condition, which is, if my people will humble themselves. Without that, everything else is vain. You can pray as much as you like. You can fast. You can cry out to God. You can preach. But God says the first condition is humble yourself. And he means it. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I want to give this a practical application. Very simple. How can we humble ourselves? And there are many possible answers. And I'll share with you one that comes out of Scripture, but I learned it by experience, the painful way. Somebody has said the school of experience is the best school in the world, but it's also the most expensive. In 1990, at the end of 1990, and on into 1991, Ruth and I took a six-month sabbatical to get away from everything, seek God, and as we thought, relax and rest. And we went to a beautiful plant part of the world, Hawaii. And we had a condominium that looked out right over the Pacific. And we thought, now we're going to have a wonderful time of Bible study and fellowship. We had dear believing friends there. Everything is going to be lovely. I'll have to tell you, it was exactly the opposite. <laughs> I don't think we've ever passed six more painful months in our lives. You say, did everything go wrong? No. Everything went God's way, not our way. <laughs> and looking back, I thank God for those six months. A dear friend of ours, Lance Lambert, said to us, because during that period I became desperately ill with a heart condition which is very difficult to diagnose and without antibiotics cannot be cured. It's called SBE, which is subacute bacterial endocarditis. It's an inflammation of the lining of the heart. I don't want to go into all the details, but I suffered from it progressively for several, I would say, months before it was diagnosed. And, but God had ordered that we would take that sabbatical. And Lance said to us, he said, I think that saved your life. Because if you had been traveling around as you usually do and had not had time to stop and go to one doctor and be thoroughly examined, it would have killed you. So that's just a little testimony to the faithfulness of God. And dear brothers and sisters, remember, obeying God may save your life. Literally. So here I am. I've preached healing. I've practiced healing. I've prayed for the sick. I believe in divine healing in the atonement. And I'm sick. And my problem was not emotional. I was not afraid of death. My problem was intellectual. What's gone wrong? Why doesn't it work? Let me tell you, never ask that question, why doesn't it work? Because it's not it, it's he. <laughs> it's very different when you once put he in place of it. Well, one night, and God has a habit of speaking to me about 2 a.m., 
sometimes if I'm wide awake at 2 a.m., I'm pretty sure that God has wanted something to communicate. And I don't want to use the word God spoke to me in a, in a sloppy way. I've heard God speak audibly. I've heard God speak through the gifts of the Spirit. But many times, it is simply an inward impression. And as I lay there at 2 a.m., and so happened that I didn't know it, but later that day I went into hospital and was in hospital for 19 days. I was saying to God in my heart, what's gone wrong? And I had an interview with Jesus. I think it was a little bit like what Paul says when, describes when he says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body, whether they were good or bad. That's not a judgment of condemnation. That's a judgment of believers to assess our faithfulness and our rewards. And it was like Jesus very calmly, uh, I would say unemotionally, without ever being condemnatory, opened up my understanding to see many different ways in which I had failed to live the way I should have been living. Now, because I'm a preacher, you may all assume that I was involved in adultery or drunkenness or the misappropriation of fun. <laughs> I just want you to know those were not my problems by the grace of God. So I'm not talking about problems like that. And I cannot go into all the details. But one of the things that the Lord showed me was how carnal I had often been. Religious, preacher, involved in meetings and conferences, but carnal. And I don't know if I can define carnal in a way that you'll understand. But I think carnality is any time you live as if there wasn't an eternity. Any time you lose sight of the fact that we're here briefly for a few years and eternity is our destination, yeah. you're carnal. You're living in the flesh. And the word of God says, he who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap what? Corruption. What is sickness? It's corruption. That's right. That, you might not believe it, but that cleared my mind. I thought, there's nothing wrong with God. He hasn't failed. He also showed me that there were sins in my life that I had not confessed. And some of them, at least one of them, went back at least 40 years. And it wasn't a, a terrible sin. It was embarrassing, not so much because it was terrible, but because it was so stupid. But God made it clear to me, and I believe the scripture says the same, that if we want our sins forgiven, there is one thing we have to do, which is confess them. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I have come to believe personally that we cannot claim the forgiveness of sins we have not confessed. And one of the great faithful ministries of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin. Not to condemn us, but to liberate us. Because when you're convicted, you can confess. 
So now let me go to a few, and let me say I went into the hospital for 19 days and I was very kindly treated and I think some preachers, maybe myself at times in the past, have kind of spoken in a slightly ungracious way about doctors, nurses and hospitals. So I want to repent. I thank God for the doctors, the nurses and the hospitals. Amen. I tell you what, something else I thank God for. This isn't super spiritual. I thank God for antibiotics. <laughs> I was on intravenous antibiotics for six weeks. And in the natural, that saved my life. Let me give you something else that God gave me in connection with this experience. It's from Psalm 117. The middle of the psalm, I think it begins with verse 15. It's one of the scriptures that Ruth and I have memorized. And it begins by addressing the devil, not God. And it says, You pushed me violently that I might fall. And the devil undoubtedly did that. He pushed me violently to make me fall. But the next verse goes on, But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he is my salvation. Then it says, The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Now listen. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. And the next verse says, The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And brothers and sisters, if God doesn't give you over to death, you will not die. But he certainly chastened me severely. He brought me face to face with things in my life and character and ministry which were displeasing to him. And he blessed my ministry for many years. The fact that God blesses you doesn't always mean that he approves of everything you do. You know? I'm not sure that there are many of us of whom it would be said that God approves of everything we do. If you are such a person, well, it's good to have you with us. <laughs> now, I say this because I believe this is the key to self-humbling. It's very simple. It's not complicated. It's confessing our sins. You cannot stay proud in the presence of a God to whom you've confessed your humiliating, embarrassing, personal sin. And let me suggest you call them by the right name. Don Double was talking with us earlier today and he said people just don't use the word sin today. They talk about problems. The blood of Jesus does not cleanse us from problems. The blood of Jesus only cleanses us from one thing sin. If you don't confess sin God won't cleanse you. And as Don said you have to take responsibility for what you've done. Don't blame your parents or your pastor or your spouse. You are answerable to God for what you have done. And if you have sinned there's only one remedy. Confess your sin. If we confess our sin God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm inclined to think, this is just an opinion, that if you haven't been cleansed, 
you probably haven't been forgiven. Because the two, it seems to me, go together. Now, I would like you to say that verse. It's 1 John 1, 9, after me, because I want to impress it upon your hearts and minds. I'll say it first, phrase by phrase. You say it afterwards. You don't have to do this. It's voluntary. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You, do you really believe then? Then you know the next thing you need to do is say thank you. No words can express how important that is in your life. There is a remedy for sin. I've lived in places and in communities and amongst cultures where people did not know there was a remedy for sin. How privileged you and I are that God has revealed to us there is a remedy for sin. I love that old song, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's face and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Do you believe that? Thank God for the blood of Jesus. There's nothing that will cleanse us. Nothing that can purify our hearts but the precious blood of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who gave himself on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, shed his blood, that we might be forgiven, that we might be cleansed, and that we might be justified. And you know what the word justified means? I don't have time to go into it. But justified means I'm just as if I'd never sinned. Because I've been made righteous through the blood of Jesus with his righteousness. Not mine, but his. A righteousness that has never known sin. I can't have a guilty conscience. I have no sins to confess. That's justified. Brothers and sisters, justification is not some complicated theological formula. It's a glorious reality. I tell people justified means this. You were being tried for a crime for which the mandatory penalty was death. And you knew you were guilty. But when the judge returned to the court and gave his verdict, he said, not guilty. And your wife was sitting there beside you and you turned to her and said, that was a nice meeting. Or did you? Or did you throw your arms around her neck and say, sweetheart, I'm free. I don't believe that Christians understand what it means to be justified if they've never been excited. I don't understand how you can believe that you were tried for a crime for which you were guilty and for which the penalty was death and you were pronounced acquitted and free, if you don't get excited, you've never really believed it. When I was a boy growing up in the Anglican Church, I loved the phrases of the Anglican literature. But, you know, critical boys at the age of about 12, I would look at the people walking out of church, and I would say to myself, I don't think they really believe what they say. 
Those words are so glorious. It's, it's no sin to get excited. In fact, it's almost a sin not to get excited. And if I can get excited, you can get excited. So step number one in humbling yourself is confess your sins to God. Now David, who was a man after God's own heart, did a lot of confessing of sins. I don't know whether you've ever noticed that. I don't know whether you've ever noticed how many times he struggled with sickness too. But in Psalm 38, verses 3 and 4, David said, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor is there any health in my bones because of my sin. Brothers and sisters, if you came here seeking for healing, that's not the only reason. There are other reasons. But why don't you check and see whether your sickness is due to your sin? David was a man after God's heart. God loved David and David loved God. But he had to say, Nor is there any health in my bones because of my sin. And then he said, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden they are too heavy for me you see if you let unconfessed sin pile up in your life it's like a burden that's added upon a burden that's added upon a burden that's added upon a burden that goes higher than your head and you're staggering through life under the burden of unconfessed sin if it could happen to David, dear brother and sister, don't say it couldn't happen to me. I think that's the problem with much of the church. There's a lack of real joy. There's a lack of real life. There's really very little freedom to witness. There's very little concern for the unsaved because we are staggering under a burden of unconfessed sin and every sin that we commit without confessing adds to the burden now confessing our sins to God is what I call vertical self-humbling we humble ourselves in our vertical relation but you know there's another kind of relationship which is horizontal and many of us particularly husbands, have been proud and arrogant and insensitive in our relationship to our wives. And you know what we have to do? We have to humble ourselves. We, and then it's not only husbands, there are some wives that are, that are due for a season of self-humbling. But it is a particularly male characteristic we find it very hard to apologize to our wives. Is that true? How many of you said recently, I'm sorry I got angry. I'm sorry I was so insensitive. I'm sorry that I didn't consider your feelings. I'm sorry that I was rude. I'm sorry that I read the newspaper at breakfast when you were trying to talk to me. <laughs> to tell the truth, 
I'm being a brute. Brothers and sisters, brothers especially, if you were to say that sincerely, it would change the atmosphere in your home in a miraculous way. Now I'm not saying all of you have to do it, but I'm saying many of you need to do it. The hardest thing I think for a husband is to humble himself before his wife. Now Ruth and I have come to a place where we do it with each other. Not as a ritual, but regularly we confess our sins to one another. See, that's scriptural. Turn to James chapter 5, verse 16. Now the NKJ says, confess your trespasses. I don't know why, because the Greek word is sins. It says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That's horizontal self-humbling. You may have to go to your pastor and say, Pastor, I have to confess I've been critical, I've been unkind, I've opposed you. Or you as a pastor might have to go to some member of your flock and say, I haven't treated you with the love and concern that I should have given you. There's no class of persons that's exempt from these requirements. And again, you see, here's a key to healing. Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In other words, unconfessed sin is a barrier to healing. I read the journals of John Wesley in the 1950s and I was deeply impacted by them. I was a Pentecostal at the time and I thought the Pentecostals had everything. When I read the journals of John Wesley I had to say to myself he had a lot of things we didn't have. But somewhere in his journals he describes the origin of one of the strongest Methodist societies that was formed in his day and I believe it was in Yorkshire. And it started with ten people who agreed to meet together every week and confess their faults one to another. How many churches start that way today? You see you can't build a church on wrong relationships. A church is built out of relationships. A home is built out of relationships. How many of your parents have ever confessed your sin to your children? I remember years ago, somewhere in the 19, around about 1950, I got angry with one of my daughters, unreasonably. And I said things to her I ought never to have said. I didn't smack her or anything like that, but I got angry. And after that, I had this strange sort of pressure in my chest. And I thought, where does it come from? And I happened to read in Ecclesiastes, anger rests in the bosom of fools. (laughs) And I knew what my problem was. I also knew there was only one solution. And it wasn't easy to do. But I had to go to my daughter and say, and say, I'm sorry I got angry with you. I shouldn't have spoken to you like that. And the pressure lifted from my chest. So, the key, I believe the key to self-humbling is confessing our sin. 
At least it's a good place to start. Confess them to God. Confess them to one another. Now just one final question. How can we know what to confess? Let me advise you this. Don't start to probe into your own character. Because the deeper you go, the worse you find. That's not God's remedy. God's remedy is through the Holy Spirit. He convicts of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. Let me give you just two passages from the Old Testament and we'll finish. Jeremiah 17. Verses 9 and 10. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? This comes to me very vividly, but in 1946 I was attending the Hebrew University in Jerusalem as a guest student. I was listening to the professor of the Hebrew language. And he commented on this verse. Now he was by no means a believer. Neither as a Jew nor as anything else. But he said the word that's used here. Deceitful. In Hebrew is Akob. Which is the same word that comes out in the name of Jacob. Ya'akob. And it means he will supplant. And then because of the way the feminine form is formed. He said, it's not passive, it's active. It's not the heart is deceived, but the heart is deceitful, it deceives. And he wasn't, he had no spiritual thoughts in mind, but I sat there and I thought to myself, I've learned one of the most valuable lessons of my life. My heart is deceitful. It doesn't tell me the truth. It deceives me. I cannot rely on my heart to tell me its true condition. And so God goes on to say, I the Lord search the heart. I test the mind or the reins or the kidneys. Even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. There's only one person who truly knows what's in your heart. It's not you. It's not the preacher. It's the Lord. And if you ask him very gently and very graciously, he'll begin to unfold to you the true condition of your heart. The great preacher Charles Finney once said this. He said, if I am convinced that if a sinner could truly see the nature of his own heart and how evil it is, he could not survive the sight. We have very dim concept of how evil and deceitful our own hearts are. The only one who can show us is the Lord through the Holy Spirit. When he, the Spirit of truth has come, he will convict of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. Jesus said in one gospel, if I, by the Spirit of God cast out demons. And in the other gospel in Luke he said, If I by the finger of God cast out demons. Which tells us that the Holy Spirit is God's finger. And when God deals with you, 
He doesn't put his whole hand there and say there's some problem there. He puts his finger and says that's where the problem is. And he'll tell you the name. And it may be a very unwelcome name. So don't rely on your own heart to tell you the truth about yourself. There's only one. And it's the Lord. And he'll be very gracious. He won't, he won't shock you with everything all at one time. But he knows you couldn't stand it. And then let's come to a prayer of David. If ever there was a man who knew the forgiveness of sins, it was David. And he had sins to forgive. Years ago, my first wife and I had an Arab maid whom we, who became our, our maid in Ramallah, in what was then Palestine, came to England with us and lived with us in our home. And she never learned to read, so she couldn't read the Bible. And her life was, I would say, somewhat inconsistent. There were times when she was infuriating, other times when she was wonderful. But she got by, and the way she got by was this. When God convicted her sin, she really poured out her heart to God. I can think of some of the prayers she prayed in Arabic today. She knew how to humble herself. What a precious gift. And know how to humble yourself before Almighty God. And David, I mean, if you think of the sins he committed and the sins he mentions which are not detailed, it is surely amazing how he became and was the man after God's own heart. So don't be discouraged, my dear brother or sister. If God puts his finger on things in your life that shock you, you can still be a man or a woman after God's own heart Amen. if you learn to humble yourself. I want to read the prayer of David in Psalm 139. This is one of our favorite psalms, Ruth and mine. Just the last two verses. This I believe is the answer to the question how shall I know what God requires me to confess. Psalm 129 verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties or my anxious thoughts or my worries. And see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Now I want to challenge you. Would you be prepared here this evening to pray that prayer? Now don't make a hasty commitment because you'll get yourself into something that you might wish you'd avoided. But as an application to my message here this evening, I want to close in a moment or two by asking you to join me in saying that prayer together. If you really mean it. And if you don't say it, I have no quarrel with you. But let me suggest to you that what I've said tonight is not something that can be dealt with by what they call an appeal or an altar call. 
I think it demands that those of you who received what I said will go to God and spend time in the presence of God. Open your heart to God and say, God, show me the things that don't please you. Show me the ways I've offended other people. Maybe the ways I've harmed my own family. Lord, deal with me gently. Don't take me too fast. But I really want to get sin out of my life. I really desire to humble myself. I'm kind of suggesting that when you go to your units tonight, you might try to practice this. Some of you, if you feel led. I wonder if there's a unit here tonight that would be like the Methodist Society that would meet together and confess their faults one to another. I think you'd find by the end of this week things would be very different. Different in this camp, different in your life, different in your unit. See, I really believe there's a great cloud of unconfessed sin over the Church of Jesus Christ in Britain. And I don't say that to condemn anybody because God is not out to condemn us. He's out to forgive us and to liberate us. But it won't be necessarily a quick five-minute deal where you come to the altar and kneel. It may be a process. But if that process is initiated here in your life tonight, by the time the camp is held here next year, you might be a totally different kind of person. I might be. I'm not going to be here next year. Maybe the year after. Let's agree. Next time we meet, we'll be different. All of us. Preachers and people. So now, you've been sitting a long while. Stand to your feet, if you will. And say this prayer, not with me, but after me. And if you want to know where it's found, it's the last two verses of Psalm 139. You're not praying to the preacher. You're praying to Almighty God. And it's a, I mean, you've got to be prepared to take the consequences. If you say, search me, O God, he's going to search you. So now I'm going to read these words. You say them after me, if you mean them. And don't say them if you don't mean them. Because God doesn't like that. Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. For Jesus' sake. Amen. For more great teaching from Derek Prince, tune in to Derek Prince Legacy Radio on a station in your area. Or you can listen online anytime at DerekPrince.org.